This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today's episode will cover the basics and the need-to-know information about Ebola. This is certainly a topic that is in the news a lot right now, and it has spread beyond West Africa into other countries. The U.S. recently reported the first death from Ebola from a foreign traveler, as well as transmission to a healthcare worker who was caring for that patient. While we don't need to panic right now, we need to be aware of the basics of this disease should it show up on your doorstep. Today's episode is based on an excellent written summary compiled by Dr. Prabhu Selvam, an emergency medicine intern at Wright Pratt Air Force Base. The summary will be available at embase.org in the show notes. One quick note is that I recorded this podcast on Thursday, October 16th, 2014, so any information on this podcast is current as of today's date. So with that said, let's get started. As always, this podcast does represent the views of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Shawshank EM Residency Program. In addition, this episode does not represent the visitor opinions of the U.S. Air Force or the Wright-Pratt Residency Program. The first thing to talk about is how Ebola is transmitted. Ebola is transmitted in a similar fashion to HIV in that it requires direct contact with infected person's bodily fluids. It is not airborne. However, it seems that Ebola demands much stricter infection control measures than HIV. Even with healthcare workers wearing full protective equipment, there seems to have been transmission to healthcare workers that was probably based on exposure to mucous membranes, such as the eyes or face. The latest report is that a nurse in Spain may have contracted Ebola after her dirty gloves brushed against her face. The case of transmission in the U.S. was based on some sort of breach of protocol. It is not known exactly what occurred, and there's also questions as to whether there were established protocols in the first place. I won't go into that issue here. Now, this one case of transmission to a healthcare worker does not prove that Ebola is transmitted in that manner, but it seems logical based on transmission that has presumably occurred outside of needle sticks, contaminated blood transfusions, or sexual contact that is usually needed for HIV transmission. Please keep in mind that I am not an expert on Ebola, and I am basing this solely from reports from the regular media outlets and the CDC. Only time and more research will be able to tell whether or not Ebola is more transmissible than HIV based on mucous membrane exposure. The most pressing thing that we need to be concerned about in the ED is how to appropriately screen patients in the ED. Similar to when Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, first started, it was important to ask every patient about their travel history. If the patient has not been to any affected country, then you should stop screening right there. For Ebola, it is now important to ask any patient with infectious symptoms whether they have been to the West African countries of Guinea, Sierra Leone, or Liberia in the past month. The next question to ask is if the patient had any exposure to a person who is known to be infected with Ebola or is under current quarantine. Right now in the U.S., that number is extremely small and confined to a few discrete areas. So if you're in the middle of nowhere USA, then it's important to reassure patients that their fever is not from Ebola unless they have traveled to those West African nations in the past month. As far as symptoms, Ebola can mimic other viral illnesses in the early stages. Patients with Ebola will likely have fever, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and they also may complain of abdominal pain, headache, sore throat, and extreme weakness. The patient may complain about weakness that is so debilitating that it may even be their chief complaint, beyond their other symptoms. More serious symptoms include altered mental status and hypovolemia. Once again, you have to put this into context with the patient's travel history. If they haven't been anywhere near Africa in the past month, or exposed to someone with confirmed or suspected Ebola, then this is not Ebola, period. 
End of story. Also keep in mind that even if the patient has been to West Africa in the past month, things like influenza and malaria are much more likely. However, we still need to isolate these patients as soon as they are identified. Please keep in mind that I am recording this on October 16, 2014. Maybe in the future Ebola will become more prevalent in the U.S. and we'll have to start worrying more about exposure, but that is not likely given how much more difficult it is to transmit Ebola compared to other viruses like the flu. One other sign that you may see is a maculopapular rash with desquamation that may occur 5-7 to seven days after symptom onset. This is around the time that the patient may bleed from their skin or mucous membranes. However, it's a common misconception that all patients with Ebola have a lot of bleeding. Patients with Ebola don't die from bleeding out like the movie Outbreak would have you believe. In fact, in previous outbreaks, only a minority of patients had bleeding episodes. In regards to the fever from Ebola, the fever tends to break around 12 days with resolution of symptoms. However, patients can be infectious for weeks until the virus clears from all their bodily fluids. It has been demonstrated that some male patients can carry the virus in their semen for up to seven weeks after the initial presentation. As far as lab abnormalities, patients with Ebola will frequently have profound electrolyte losses, especially potassium. You may also see leukopenia, aka a low white blood cell count, low platelets, an elevated liver function tests, and an elevated creatinine. Patients may also have clinical abnormalities consistent with disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, but the clinical significance of these findings is unclear. Findings of DIC include a low platelet count, elevated coags, elevated D-dimer, elevated fibrinogen or fibrin degradation products, and schistocytes visible on peripheral blood smears. As far as making a laboratory diagnosis for Ebola, there are a few ways to do this to include ELISA, reverse transcription PCR, and viral culture. If you have a suspected case of Ebola in your ED, your public health department will probably take over testing from there, so at the moment, you won't be ordering these tests yourself. Still, talk with your lab and hospital administration to find out their plan for testing for Ebola in suspected cases. The next big concern is how to isolate patients once you suspect that they have Ebola. While a negative pressure room is not absolutely required, it would seem to be the most logical place in the emergency department to isolate patients. Any healthcare workers taking care of the patient will need full-length gowns, gloves, eye protection, face masks, and boots to enter the patient's room. Proper procedures need to be followed to remove this protective equipment when you are done in the patient's room to avoid infection. Keep the number of blood draws and needle sticks to an absolute minimum and be sure to double bag all personal protective equipment and send for incineration. I've also read that healthcare workers have been working in two-person teams where one person does patient care and the other is strictly there to observe for any breaks in protective equipment or proper procedures. This seems to be a common sense way of ensuring adequate protection for healthcare workers. Finally, how do you treat a patient with suspected Ebola? Right now, there is no known vaccine or specific treatment for Ebola. There has been limited use of a monoclonal antibody called ZMAP. However, no randomized trials have been done and is not currently available to the public. There are a few vaccine candidates in Phase 1 trials right now. So for the moment, the cornerstone of treatment for Ebola is meticulous critical care. Ebola causes hypovolemia from massive capillary leak so lots of IV fluids will be necessary, and vasopressors may be needed to maintain blood pressure. While no experts have said this outright, you can think about this patient the same way you would think about a patient with bacterial sepsis. They need lots of fluids to restore volume 
and vasopressors once the tank is full to maintain blood pressure. You'll also want to pay close attention to electrolyte abnormalities and aggressively replace them as needed. Pay special attention to the patient's potassium as these patients get very hypokalemic. If you're seeing signs of DSC via lab work or evidence of bleeding from catheter sites, then treat with blood products as you usually would for DIC. In general, give platelets if the patient's platelet count falls below 20 and use fresh frozen plasma to correct coagulation deficiencies. Even though DIC is usually marked by excessive bleeding, treatment with heparin has been found to be useful in selected patients. However, there are many intricacies to treating DIC, which is a whole other podcast unto itself. This is the patient where you will definitely want to get your hematologist on the phone and ask for their input on treatment. The bottom line for treating Ebola is to just do good critical care. Use the lessons we have learned from treating severe sepsis, and you will give these patients the best chance of survival. One last warning, if the patient needs central access for vasopressors, you obviously need to be extra careful about needle sticks, so this is not a teaching line for the intern. Get your most experienced person to do it, and make sure to be slow and deliberate with all the sharps to avoid getting infected. Also make sure to have another person observing the procedure to ensure no breaks in personal protective equipment or sterile technique. That's it for this quick summary on Ebola. Let's finish this up by summarizing a few main points. Screening for Ebola should focus on those that have traveled to the West African countries of Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea within the past month who are displaying infectious symptoms. These infectious symptoms include fever, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, abdominal pain, and extreme weakness. If the patient doesn't have a travel history or wasn't in direct intimate contact with someone who is known or strongly suspected to have Ebola, then this is not Ebola. The patient may complain most about extreme weakness and be on the lookout for a maculopapular rash that may desquamate five to seven days into the course of illness. Contrary to popular belief, most patients with Ebola don't have bleeding and don't die from, quote, bleeding out. Lab abnormalities include low potassium, low white blood cell count, low platelet counts, and elevated liver function tests, and elevated creatinine. Treatment for Ebola focuses on good critical care, aggressive fluid resuscitation, vasopressors to maintain blood pressure, and correction of electrolyte abnormalities and coagulation deficiencies. You need to be especially aggressive about potassium replacement as these patients may be severely hypokalemic. Consult your hematologist for recommendations concerning treatment of DIC if you suspect this based on bleeding from puncture sites, low platelets, elevated coags, and elevated D-dimer or fibrinogen. That's all I have for this quick review of Ebola. Please feel free to comment on the website at eatingbasic.org or send me an email at steve at eatingbasic.org. Thanks again to Dr. Prabhu Selvam for providing the written summary and basis for this podcast. Before I sign off, I just want to give a quick shout out to the one and only mercenary. You know who you are. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Basic Podcast, signing off.